a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join us. You ready to engage in some wrong think? Pull up a chair. Let's let's get after it. Our program is brought to you in part today by Rio Del Sion Home Lots, also by Monticello College and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I've thoughtfully included links to each one of these sponsors in today's show notes for February 25th at thebrianhydeshow.com. So, you know, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. You probably picked up on that if you've listened to more than one episode of this, but it's it's not so much that I think everybody else is wrong. It's just I really value the the prospect of being able to be autonomous and to to chart my own course. Now, I'm talking peacefully, okay? This is not like going around like a caveman, clubbing people over the head and taking whatever I want. I have respect for the rights of others. I expect, um, you know, respect for my rights in return. And let's just say COVID has put a real damper on this in that uh, it's it's broken down traditional respect for one another's, you know, personal rights. And and, and in so many ways, we're going to be talking a little bit about this today, including, you know, who owns your face? Who gets to make decisions about what your face looks like? Is your face protected by substantive due process? Actually, Judge Napolitano says it is, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. We'll also talk a little bit about the uh, current uh, ramping up to a war against extremism. Because the way extremism is being defined, it's pretty clear it's not legit extremist. It's not like, you know, cross-burning, you know, haters out there. It's people who want to be autonomous. So it's more like an attack on nonconformity. And it's something that uh, apparently some people are taking seriously enough they really feel like, I can do this because I have every right in the world to do so. We'll also talk about what it's like to uh, not live your life as a politically correct label. Because those same folks seem pretty eager to attach labels to the ones they want to get back in line. Jeff Minnick has some really good advice for us about what to do with those labels and uh, what to do in terms of uh, exercising that self-determination. But I want to start with, uh, with the political side of pandemics. They really shouldn't be combined at all, but that's kind of where we find ourselves. I was having a conversation with a coworker last night about masks because we are required at, at, at this retail job to wear masks. And not just wear them, but you wear them correctly. And, you know, this, my home state of Utah has been sending OSHA inspectors in to shake people down and to talk to them about it. Um, by the way, a good friend of mine, an eye doctor, wrote about uh, the experience he recently had with a couple of inspectors. And he said, these OSHA inspectors, by the way, were, were very kind. They were very professional. But they also were there because someone has filed a complaint and said that you don't wear a mask while you're, you know, examining your patients. And his response was, it's true, I don't, and I haven't ever worn one, and I won't wear one. And he said, and if you want to issue me a fine, give me the citation, I will publicly shred it. I'm not going to pay a $10,000 fine or whatever they're threatening because I'm not going to be intimidated like this. I want you to think about that. 
Under what circumstances would you consider it appropriate for a total stranger to walk into somebody's business and say, hey, we've had a complaint about this and we want to take away $10,000 of your hard-earned money, which is actually earned as opposed to just plundered, because uh, you didn't uh, obey some directive, not even a law, but just some directive by a bureaucrat somewhere within the uh, healthcare system or within the state's Department of Health. That does sound a little bit uh, unreasonable, I would hope, to most people, but to the person who is drunk on political power, no, it, it sounds like a pretty reasonable thing. And, I, you know, for my friend, the eye doctor... I'm very proud of him for doing what he does. It's very consistent. This man is a, is a lover of liberty. He knows what liberty is about. He knows it matters. He, he's willing to be uncomfortable and even face danger in order to have, to claim, to use, and, and defend his liberty. He's, he's serious about it. Why do so few people other, you know, why, why do so very few people recognize, though, what's taking place? Like I say, I'm required to wear a mask, you know, while I'm at this retail job. And I have tried to find ways to, to make it work. I, I've even, I've even in my personal life, you know, there's very few places where I'll put on a mask. Sometimes I'll do it to get past the mask enforcer at the door. But I've, I've taken to what I kind of refer to as the thong approach. Yes, I have a mask. And I, and I have arranged that mask so it only covers my nose and my mouth. In other words, my beautiful bearded chin sticks right out, and, and I'm good with that. And so far, nobody has said anything to me about it. But I still feel like I'm compromising in a way that I really probably shouldn't. Here's the bottom line. We tend to underestimate how dangerous political power actually is. And if there's a lesson we should have learned over this past year, this is the lesson. Politicians shouldn't be managing pandemics because they will bend the science to fit their political objectives. I've got an article I picked up this morning off of LewRockwell.com from Bill Sardi. And it starts with the statement, The COVID-19 pandemic in the United States is as much a political problem as it is a public health problem. He says the politicization of the COVID-19 pandemic has not been overlooked in the health literature. University-based researchers from different quarters conclude political party affiliation is the strongest factor in COVID-19 in the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is just a sampling of some of the the researchers who have come to this conclusion. Party affiliation was shown to drive policy decisions and impact COVID-19 infections and deaths across the US, university-based researchers concluded. Future policy decisions should be guided by public health considerations rather than political ideology. By the way, there are links to each one of these examples he gives. There's also a report published in the Journal of Health, Politics, and Policy Law which states actions driven by partisanship rather than public health expertise and scientific recommendations may exact greater tolls on health and broader society. You think? Yet another journal, Nature Human Behavior, publishes a report that concludes the possibility that political partisanship in the United States is now sufficiently far-reaching and pernicious enough to threaten the health of citizens, is now sufficiently far-reaching, rather, and pernicious enough to threaten the health of citizens during a pandemic. And again, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, university-based researchers concluded that, quote, 
political partisanship influences citizens' decisions to voluntarily engage in physical distancing in response to communications by their governor. You also have a letter published in the Journal of American Medicine, Internal Medicine, that also confirms political affiliation influenced physical distancing and restrictive recreational activities. In a pre-publication report at MedRx4 from March to early June 2020, investigators indicate Republican-led states had lower COVID-19 incidence rates compared to Democratic-led states. Now, the association reversed, this association rather reversed on June 3rd of 2020, but for death rates, Republican-led states had lower rates early in the pandemic, but higher rates from July 4th through mid-December, as if a virus somehow recognized party affiliation. Then there's the report published in Science Advances, revealing 80% of Democrats, but just 40% of Republicans, reported being concerned about catching COVID-19 in the early months of lockdown and quarantine. And Bill Sardi says, I hope readers understand this. Not only did politicians invoke guidelines for face masks, social distancing, and avoidance of crowds for political purposes, the public accepted these guidelines along political party lines. And the news media then portrayed these restrictions as public law rather than unauthorized decrees, which is what they are. Laws require a vote in the state legislature. Now public health agencies are kicking you-know-what on restaurant chains and owners who are largely red party elephants, not blue donkeys. The National Restaurant Association largely contributes to the red party. The red plates outnumber the blue plates in the restaurant business. So they annihilate the political opposition by putting them out of business, which is the objective of the World Economic Forum and its global government push. Researchers at Vanderbilt University proclaimed the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States is currently as much a political problem as it is a public health problem. One party failed to heed social mobility restrictions required to mitigate the further spread of the pandemic, said researchers. Though, as you'll read below, he says those measures were not based or were based only on manipulated data. All right, I got to take a break here, but when we come back, I'm going to finish up with this article from Bill Sardi. I I don't think it's an outrageous or, you know, reaching statement to say it is more politicized than just about anything going on, which is saying something considering that last year was an election year when everything is politicized. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Stay with us, please. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Monticello College. You want to know what an education for our time looks like? Please go to the sponsor link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. The one you want to click on there is Monticello College. I will let their website do the talking for them. Powerful, powerful stuff and very innovative. And if you know someone who is really looking for a true blue liberal arts education and, and, and a bit more, this is one worth checking out. I've been sharing an article with you from Bill Sardi. This was published on lourockwell.com. I'll have it in the show notes as well about how politicians shouldn't be managing pandemics because 
they will bend the science to fit their political objectives. And what Bill Sardi is getting at here is state governors, not federal authorities, have legal control over public health emergencies. Stay-at-home orders were issued by nearly all state governors. Republican governors were slower to adopt stay-at-home orders if they did so at all. While Democratic governors issued stay-at-home orders of long duration. He says political party affiliation was shown to be the most important predictor of state mandates to wear masks, face masks. But he says the problem is that the protective measures employed to impede the spread of infection and reduce deaths were often nothing more than arbitrary rules with little or no substantiation. He says his own investigation found countries where face masks are commonly worn had the highest COVID-19 death rates. He says social distancing is a farce. It's more likely someone will acquire any infectious disease at home due to close contact with family members. The social distancing could be a covert measure to block public meetings against government. <clears throat> Funny, that seemed reasonable when we were applying it to uh, pro-democracy protesters in, uh, in Taiwan, right? Or was it, I'm sorry, in Hong Kong. My bad. Wasn't it crazy how, oh, but the disease shut down all of those protests and that worked out really well for the Chinese Communist Party. But for some reason, when we see it happening here at home, it's like, oh, well, well, actually, I guess we saw it in the media, you know, where um, riots and rallies for Black Lives Matter, uh, they seem to get the pass. Well, this is, you know, justified. It's understandable. Whereas any gathering whatsoever of people <clears throat> of a slightly more conservative bent, why, this is a dangerous super spreader event. <laughs> okay, it's, it's an interesting double standard. Social distancing, says Bill Sardi, use of face masks and population lockdown could not have been responsible for any decline in COVID-19 infections or deaths as they only delay rather than prevent infectious disease. In fact, lockdowns just resulted in 40% of elderly patients getting sick from family members in the same living quarters. PCR testing has led to restrictions for large groups of people who don't present an infection risk. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institutes of Infectious Disease, states in a July 16, 2020 podcast, he says that when the PCR test is run at 35 doubling cycles or higher, it cannot be believed or accepted. Well, guess what? Most PCR tests have been conducted at 35 doublings. The COVID-19 deaths also appear to be fraudulent with patients on their deathbed diagnosed with COVID infection by a flawed test and tagged with COVID-19 on their death certificates. Upon audit, the Centers for Disease Control itself concedes 94% of COVID-19 deaths were accompanied by life-threatening comorbid conditions, with most deaths occurring among elderly patients. More than 90% of human populations are already positive for at least three of the common cold coronaviruses. Prior coronavirus infections confer protection for COVID-19. And about 9 in 10 people diagnosed with laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 may not be carrying enough of it to infect anyone else. The guidelines established by public health authorities to slow or halt the pandemic may be nothing more than stress relievers. So Bill Sardi says, look, understand, all these lockdowns and social distancing and face masks were to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed while the masses wait for a vaccine. But there may never be a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine. In the end, political operatives needed deaths to frighten the public into acceptance of these draconian measures. And without scrutiny by the nation's politically slanted news press, fear of death spread rapidly, 
Reports of shipping containers in hospital parking lots filled with dead bodies that couldn't be accommodated in hospital morgues was one fear-mongering publicity stunt. And by the way, deaths they did produce, at least in one instance, by returning hospitalized infected patients to nursing homes. Then to sidestep the political heat for all the deaths, COVID-19 fatality numbers in nursing homes were not completely reported. Governor Cuomo, we're looking your direction. And Americans allowed this to go on because they too were sucked into applying political blame. In other words, the pandemic became political theater. Americans were swept into the false drama, and if you refused to wear a face mask, you were a public threat. Bill Sardi says Americans will never face up to reality because the news press keeps beating that political drum. And he says, God help you if your loved ones got caught up in this contrived tragedy and paid for it with their lives. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, but uh, whether you agree or disagree, does he not raise some legit concerns? What happens when things become politicized? Can science become politicized? I know the scientist collecting that uh, taxpayer-funded paycheck. Oh, of course not. No, we just buy, this is strictly for the sake of science. But, you know, you want to keep that paycheck coming, don't you? Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. So make sure that uh, it justifies your job or the jobs of those who are paying you or overseeing you. I know how cynical that sounds, but you know what? I've lived just long enough to believe I think that's how government often works. And politics often works. So that means you and I need to be on our toes. Here's a question for you. Who owns your face? Judge Andrew Napolitano says, after listening to Dr. Anthony Fauci suggest last weekend that we should expect to be wearing two masks on our faces everywhere we go until the end of 2022, he said, I begin thinking again about first principles. Fauci is entitled to express his opinions, yet... Because he is the president's chief advisor on COVID-related medical matters, Napolitano says, I cringed when I heard what he said. Was this a trial balloon, or did he mean it literally? Are these suggestions, or will they become commands with the purported force of law? Because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It governs the government wherever it goes and whatever it does. The original purpose of the Constitution was twofold— to establish the federal government, and to limit its regulatory and taxing powers to the 17 discrete powers articulated in Article 1. Now, the former took place in 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. That latter part, though, has been a dismal failure. And Napolitano explains it's because the federal government recognizes next to no limits to its powers. No matter which political party controls Congress and the White House, The feds believe they can right any wrong, tax any event, regulate any behavior subject only to the express prohibitions in the Constitution. And even when there is a prohibition, such as Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, well, Congress has found ways around it. To the federal government, no law does not mean no law. Just ask the folks who've been prosecuted for their speech. This is known as the Wilsonian model, named after President Woodrow Wilson, who advanced it shamelessly. By the way, all of his presidential successors have done the same. Before Wilson, for the most part, and except for the Civil War years, the federal government recognized the limitations imposed upon it by the Constitution and for the most part stayed within their confines. This is known as the Madisonian model, named after President James Madison, who wrote the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. 
The first eight amendments in the Bill of Rights articulate negative rights. That is, amendments don't grant rights. They restrain the government from interfering with rights that already existed when the amendments were ratified. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments expressly require that government prove fault and harm at a jury trial before it can interfere with property rights. The Ninth Amendment commands the enumeration of certain rights in the first eight, eight amendments, nevertheless does not negate any other rights that retained by the people. Among those rights that the government shall not deny or disparage are those that affect property ownership. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. But again, I ask you the question, who owns your face? And therefore gets to determine what it looks like. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Judge Andrew Napolitano. Simple question. Who owns your face? And he's explaining the proper role of government in this context. I thought this was really great. I love in this article where he says, as I've thought about this and thought about, well, Dr. Fauci getting up there and saying, well, you know, we're going to be needing to wear two masks till at least the end of 2022. Like a lot of people, that caused me to go, oh, please. This madness is going to continue for the better part of the next two years. But Judge Napolitano says, you know, thinking about that, it disturbed him to hear Dr. Fauci talk about this, and so he started thinking about first principles. That's a very good habit, by the way, something every one of us should likely be doing. Behind every political controversy and every conflict and every source of friction, there's a principle that's at stake. And the more clearly we can identify and enunciate those principles, the more likely we are to to know when it's okay to say no, as opposed to, well, you know, this is kind of a legitimate thing that is is being asked of me, and I should probably go along with it. So as Napolitano was explaining, the Ninth Amendment commands that the enumeration of certain rights in the first eight amendments doesn't negate any other rights of the people, and government cannot deny or disparage those rights, including your rights to property ownership. He says, all property not owned by the government confers upon its owners what lawyers call the bundle of property rights. The bundle includes the right to use the property, to alienate the property, sell, lease, encumber, and exclude others from the property, even the government, as the owner sees fit. That bundle represents the natural rights that property ownership confers upon owners. The government does not enjoy the rights contained in the bundle. Now, he says, you can exclude me from your garden party because I'm a Catholic or a libertarian. The government cannot do so from its property for the same reasons. The bundle represents natural rights, which are enjoyed only by natural people. And the government is not a natural person. It is an artificial construct based on a monopoly of force in a geographic area. Yet today, the government tells us what we can and cannot do on our property, regulates and taxes the use of our property, and comes onto our property under all sorts of pretexts. Stated differently, the government doesn't care about property rights and it denies and disparages them regularly. 
That includes the 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments notwithstanding. Among the property rights that our government has lately denied is the ownership of our bodies. As our rights are natural, they are integral to our humanity. We are born with the ownership of our bodies, a right that ripens as we achieve adulthood. The Supreme Court has recognized the right to make personal, private decisions about our bodies and immunize those decisions from ordinary governmental assault. So when the government tells us what clothing we must minimally wear under the Constitution, it must mean on property that it owns, not on private property. Yet even on government property, the Constitution protects us. So what about your face? As you own your body, he says you own your face. And Judge Napolitano says decisions about what your face looks like are protected by substantive due process. Stated differently, these are private, personal decisions to shave or not to wear makeup or not, to bear the face or not. Those decisions are essentially immune from government regulation, absent a showing of fault and harm. Now, the government can dispatch its medical personnel to persuade us to do as the government wishes, despite neglecting a substantial body of medical evidence that contradicts what it preaches, but it may not use the force of law to compel compliance on the face. The whole purpose of the Bill of Rights is to keep the government off the people's backs, as Justice William O. Douglas famously wrote. Now, he could have written faces. Napolitano says there are areas of human behavior that are none of the government's business. Facial appearance, because we own our own faces and can exclude all others, even the government from them, is foremost among them. History teaches that governments crave control and resist restraint. They negate liberty. Yet according to the Declaration of Independence, the reason we have government is not to tell us how to live, but to protect our freedoms. And he asks, how well has that worked? Look, there's a civics lesson in this article that is worth going over and just internalizing or perhaps sharing with people who likewise are trying to get it straight. At what point can government order me to put on a face mask? I'll have this article linked in the show notes. Again, you can find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. Strongly recommend. Revisit those first principles. Know those first principles. Live by those first principles and watch the uh, impact it has on others. Now, speaking of the impact you have on others, by living your first principles, especially those regarding the proper role of government and keeping it uh, off your back or off your face, as the case may be, this is going to open you up for attack. And I don't say this to scare you. It's just, you know, people are trained to attack nonconformity. And something interesting, Aaron White, in an article published on everythingvoluntary.com, talks about attacking nonconformity. But listen to this. He says, attacks on extremism are merely attacks on nonconformity. You're hearing a lot of talk about it. We've got to root out this extremism. We've got to do something about the extremism that plagues our country. Well, there you have it. It's not so much the extremists. I mean, look around you. How many people really are militant extremists? Notwithstanding, you know, the folks dressed in black, rioting and burning down, you know, places for the better part of uh, the last half of 2020. I think we could safely say those were extremists. Nonetheless, most of us are not. But if you're a nonconformist, you're being portrayed as one. Aaron White says, we are all extremists by the standards of 99.99% of societies to ever exist. Only by a small sliver in time and a small segment of the earth are some of us not radical extremists. 
But he says, of course, uh, even within our own culture, even the most severely docile individuals aren't an extremist on some specific issues. Did everyone today just simultaneously realize truths that will inexplicably stand up for millennia? Of course not. The trends of our culture are largely just a passing fad inspired by history, technology, economics, tribalism, and other various incentives. He says our culture is just a passing glimpse in time that future generations will look on as we look at people in the 14th century. By the way, because of that, that's a very good reason to not judge those who came before us as harshly as we tend to judge them. Pull those statues down! Clearly, they had their blind spots. Clearly, they had their flaws. But the thing that nobody wants to consider is what about us? Do we have blind spots? I guarantee we do. And I promise you that a time will come somewhere down the road where people will be looking at this time going, really? They didn't even know if they were male or female? Holy cow. The idea here, Aaron White says, is we, are, uh, we aren't a predominantly truth-seeking species. We are a social species. So when someone condemns extremism, they aren't attacking deniers of truth. They're, they're attacking deniers that truth is decided through majoritarianism. Does that make sense to you? Well, everybody believes this. Well, what if everybody's wrong? Ah, you're, you're extreme for saying that. <laughs> he says, attacking extremism is hijacking your social nature and labeling some people weird and worthy of derision. Attacking extremism, he says, is more akin to calling someone with glasses four eyes or making fun of the autistic kid more than anything else. So I guess the lesson here that I'm seeing is yeah, if, if you decide that you are going to stand, particularly if, if you're, if you're going to stand for your own freedoms or your own self-determination, the chances are very good you're going to be labeled an extremist. You just will. People who want to control you will always try to guilt you or otherwise shame you into, you need to do what I say. And that label carries some power, especially since uh, we're, we're apparently seeing our federal government militarize itself, literally militarize itself against extremism and efforts to root it out. So you've got to be used to being called names. You've got to be used to being thought of someone who is out of step with the rest of society. Here's the good news, though. It's okay. It's okay to be that one person who stands against the crowd. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you that it doesn't hurt, because it hurts when people start attacking you and start questioning your motives. Um, it's, it, it sucks. It's just not fun. There's no other way to say it. It's it's really no fun at all, but it's necessary. And here's why. People who are looking for truth, people who understand something here doesn't add up, need that example of those who are courageous enough not to yield their autonomy to whatever the thoughtless masses are embracing at that moment, whatever fad they happen to be clinging to. Now, there's another lesson that comes along with this as well. This can be a tough one because as frustrating as it is to have people questioning your motives and questioning your intelligence and your sanity and your ability to, to think things through for yourself, it's tempting to want to reach out and stick some labels on them in return. How do you like that? How does that feel? If you want to be an effective conveyor of truth, can I suggest that's not a good approach to use. You want to get that message through? Speak the truth with love, take the hits, keep on smiling, and let them come to a knowledge of the truth at their own pace. I recommend this because I put it to use, and I can just tell you, it works. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Rio del Sion Home Lots. A lot of people are making moves right now. People getting out of uh, various high-density urban areas, moving moving towards something that they consider a little more sane, a little more manageable, maybe just downshifting. And that, in turn, seems to be bringing an awful lot of people to my home state of Utah. I only say this because I have friends in the real estate business, and they tell me it's crazy. Cash offers on homes. They, they, you do not see homes sitting on the market. They are going so quickly. And some people come here with the intent of building their dream home. And if you're one of those people who is moving to my home state of Utah, especially if you're looking to relocate to southern Utah, where, by the way, the winters are extremely mild and just lovely, and there's, there's an abundance of beautiful scenery, I want you to go to my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look for the sponsor links, click click on Rio del Sion Home Lots, and just take a little virtual tour. Maybe it's a good fit for you. If it is, I, I'm very happy for you. I hope it's someplace where you can, can land. Right outside Zion National Park, right alongside the Virgin River, absolutely gorgeous. I do ask this one favor, though. If you check them out, if you contact Rio del Sion Home Lots, please take the time to mention that one of the reasons you checked him out, <clears throat> excuse me, is because I asked you to do so as a listener of this podcast or this program. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, how does it feel living life as a politically correct label? There's a lot of this going around right now, and for some people it's still pretty uncomfortable. Uh, some of us have been used to getting labeled for a while, and um, you get to a point where people think they're pushing buttons. Oh, yeah, well, you're this or you're that. And they don't realize that uh, those buttons were disconnected a long time ago. But people who believe in word magic, if I call you something, that's what you must be, they still persist. <clears throat> Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, recalls how back in the 1990s, he was a Sunday school teacher member of his parish council, a small business owner, a leader in his son's Cub Scout pack. He says, I even put in a five-year, co- put in a year coaching five-year-olds in soccer, though what I knew about the sport could have been penned on a sticky note, one of the small ones. But he says, I've never carried as many labels and titles as I do right now. And here's the crazy part. It's with no effort on his part. He says, I'm now branded a white supremacist and a bigot, an insurrectionist and a terrorist, a toxic male, a Christian, as if that were a bad thing, and a recessive genetic defect. Now, he says, I'm sure our moniker makers have have devised other tags for me, but he says, I'm too lazy and uninterested to look for them. Obviously, I'm qualified for the re-education camps some have proposed for people of my ilk, If those camps include medical and dental care, a decent library, access to a computer, and a nightly glass or two of Chardonnay, then sign me up. I'd enjoy the company of like-minded patriots. Now, he says, for some rebuttals to these charges. He says, I just looked in the mirror, a major sacrifice on my part, and I discovered I am not white. Instead, my face is a palette of various shades of pink, a consequence of age, sunshine, and alcohol. So, am I then a pink supremacist? Not really, you see. He says, I believe that anyone who feels superior to others because of skin pigmentation is an idiot. It's like saying I'm better than you because I'm wearing Gucci jeans. 
On January 6th, he attended the rally in Washington, D.C. to support Donald Trump. He says, my party of 16, five adults and 11 adolescents left after the speeches ended. Yet we are now designated insurrectionists and terrorists. The most deadly weapon anyone in our group carried was a purse. And what about that shivering 11-year-old? Is he a terrorist? He says, I'm not quite sure I qualify as a toxic male because I have no idea what that means. Are all men toxic unless they behave more like women? And why do we go on bashing men anyway? There doesn't seem to be a point to this chauvinism. Isn't it time we moved on? Yes, he says, I am a Christian. And while often weak in the practice of my faith, I am a believer. Should I then be deemed some kind of fanatic? But he says, most recently I discovered I am a recessive genetic defect. In an article discussing the radical direction being taken by so many of our public librarians, Eileen Toplansky includes this passage, quote, that librarians have committed to a known Marxist group such as BLM is most revealing and shocking. In fact, a co-founder of BLM's Toronto branch is a young woman named Yusra Kogali, who in late 2015 <clears throat> posted the following message on Facebook. Whiteness is not humixness. In fact, white skin is subhumixen. She does not want to say the word men. White people are recessive genetic defects. This is factual. White people need white supremacy as a mechanism to protect their survival as a people because all they can produce, all they do is produce themselves. Black people, simply through their dominant genes, can literally wipe out the white race if we had the power to, end quote. Now, Jeff says, look, as a lover of the English language, I find this post to be an abomination. Does this young woman not even understand the most basic concepts of grammar? Maybe I'm displaying my whiteness by even asking the question. But most importantly, how is Kogali's point of view not racist? If you were to exchange black and white in this post, you would find yourself canceled and standing in an unemployment office after being fired from your job, and rightly so. And yet on and on it goes, the never-ending racist game. In the true origin and true agenda of anti-racist politics, Edward Ring writes, quote, In every federal agency, including the military, in corporate America, including sports and entertainment, throughout the colleges and universities, even down into the K-12 public schools, Woke ideology now permeates the culture. It is a seductive, divisive philosophy that emphasizes group conflict over individual competition and achievement. If it isn't stopped, it will destroy everything that has made America great. End quote. Now, Jeff Minnick says, like all the other labels mentioned above, anti-racism divides rather than unites, creates disharmony rather than eradicating it. Martin Luther King Jr., who's a hero to the civil rights movement, famously said that he hoped his children would one day live in a character in a nation rather, where they where they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now that's a right and worthy dream that prioritizes individual integrity rather than color or race. But today this idea seems almost quaint. So Jeff Minnick says, for those who smear entire groups with their labels of hate and lies, he says, I have some news for you. Many of us are no longer listening. As for me personally, I've thrown the tags you've tried to pin on me into the wastebasket, poured another cup of coffee, and will greet the day wearing some other labels I dearly love. Father, grandfather, American. I like his approach. Rather than just go out there and fight them head on, yes, we will collide and we will fight and we will see who who is standing at the end of this. What they want more than anything is a reaction. Don't give it to them. 
deny them what they really want. And understand, the use of labels in the place of, of observation, that's, that's a lazy approach to, to living life. And people who believe that, well, I have to apply a label to you to, to categorize who you are and why I don't have to listen to you, that's not the mark of a person who is, is using their brain power. That's a mark of a person who's standing there doing the equivalent of holding their hands over their ears and shutting their eyes while chanting, da, 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 so they don't have to hear or consider whatever it is that you're trying to say, which most likely would just simply be defending yourself, saying, hey, I'm none of the things you're calling me. This is, this is not just limited to the BLM, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's not just limited to those left, progressive, woke causes. Sadly, there are people on the, on the political right who fall into this as well. I think it's a good indicator if you find yourself using labels, you're engaging in a form of collectivism. Because you're, you're trying to put people into a collective group rather than measure them based on the merits of, look, are they a decent person or not? Because that happens at an individual level. And I'm certainly not suggesting, by the way, we should be going around and judging everybody. You are decent. You are not. Although in traffic, my skill on this matter seems to improve a lot. I don't know why. I'm probably not the only one. But nonetheless... You don't need to be running around judging people, condemning them because they're not a part of your crusade, which is what the woke often do. It's really frustrating. All you need to do is simply look at people for who they are and resist the urge to give in to collectivism. Look, at its, at its roots... Racism is nothing more than a particularly ugly form of collectivism because it tends to group everybody into tribes or into groups according to skin color or pigmentation, and it's sick, and it's wrong. And it's just as wrong when it is a person, you know, with plenty of of pigmentation criticizing those who have less pigmentation. They're still engaging in collectivism. They're still devaluing the individual. And more often than not, they're doing it for purposes of trying to obtain power or dominion over one another. Yet that doesn't sound even the least bit healthy. Don't be that person. And don't give in to those who are trying to assert control over you, you know, under those circumstances. This is the Brian Hyde Show.